Skipping over the D's. Do this part with ease. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You're fired up. You're primed I'm, for this. I'm ready. I'm ready, man. Let's go. <laughs> Let's huh? do it, man. I did not have sexual relations with that one. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Hey there, and welcome to the Communications Breakdown podcast brought to you by Campsite Strategies. Each week, we're talking to and learning from some of the best in the communications business, trying to break down what is working and what's not anymore. I'm John Camp, recovering TV reporter with 20 years in local news. This week, we're going to dive into communicating around the matter of race. We're going to tackle this head on today, and I've asked my good friend, True Pettigrew, to help us through it. Nobody, perhaps, better for the job True has made talking about race and improving race relations your life mission. Really couldn't be happier to have you on the pod. No, thank you for having me, and you are absolutely correct. This is what I have dedicated my life to, is a racial reconciliation. I love it. A little later on, we're going to be joined by a few veteran comms folks to expand the conversation. Karel Sampson, Mitch Kokai, both have spent years in the news business. Karel is a TV news producer. Mitch, who started out reporting and is now the communications lead here at the John Locke Foundation, where we're taping this podcast. And we've got three really interesting interviews on tap today. Al McShirley, he is a warrior in the civil rights movement. Angela Frazier, a former power broker turned empowerer of women of color. And State Senator Floyd McKissick Jr., whose father marched with Dr. Martin Luther King and was in his own right a nationally recognized civil rights leader. He's got some good thoughts on all of this as well. So, Drew, let's kick things off with you. Give us a short breakdown of who you are and where you're coming from, and we'll take it from there. All right. True Pettigrew, live in Cary, North Carolina, moved here 11 years ago from Boston. My background is in the advertising and marketing world, Was spent 20 years doing that, started True Access seven years ago in 2012 as a community bridge building organization, helping organizations build bridges across racial divides, generational divides, and relational divides. Man, that is a huge topic. When you and I first sat down a couple of years ago and you told me that, my head was spinning hmm. uh, because that's a, a, that is the goal. How do you tackle that? What do you do? It takes a lot of patience to be able to, to do that. And I believe you have to be wired to do this type of work because you can hear some things that are offensive. You receive some accusations from people across all walks of life. It's interesting when you talk about race, simply talking about race. There are people that have accused me of being racist. There are people that have accused me of being a race baiter simply because I talk just about bringing race. it up. Yep, just bringing it up makes people uncomfortable. Talk about how you do your job, who you talk to, because quite honestly, we had to move the typing time of this <laughs> podcast because uh, because you had a, a, a movement in one of your jobs. Can, can you talk about who you were talking to and can you talk a little bit about that? No, no, absolutely. A lot of the work that I do is with local law enforcement. And so I was with members of the North Carolina State Highway Patrol earlier today, and, and I really commend them for their efforts in wanting to be leaders in engaging this conversation and this topic on race and diversity and how they can better serve the diverse communities that they are called to serve. 
And so I do a lot of work with law enforcement throughout the state and, and across the country. I work with schools, colleges, and corporations of all types. Yeah, because your work is not just important for the people who you are directly serving, but rather for the people who they are serving. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's no secret that in this country right now that there are tensions between law enforcement and communities of color. And if we don't openly address it and have some conversations about why we are where we are, how we got here, and more importantly, how we can take some steps to resolve, reconcile, and heal those damaged relationships, it's, we, we will never be able to effectively address it. It will only get worse. And as much as people are uncomfortable talking about it, if we don't have those courageous conversations, we will never be able to resolve it. Well, how do you have those, or how do you encourage, rather, those conversations? It's a, my approach is facilitated dialogue having some facilitated conversations. So I, um, I'm fortunate that I have some experience and expertise in being a, a moderator and a facilitator. And people have their views and they have their perspectives and all of that is rooted in their life experiences. And we all have these unconscious or implicit biases that have been formed and largely from a world that we share. One of the biggest drivers of our unconscious bias is, is through media, quite candidly. And so if Words and images have tremendous amounts of power. And if you are seeing certain people through a specific lens, then that is the perception that you will form. If you are constantly hearing stories and narratives about certain groups of people, that is the perception or those are the perceptions you will form about that group. So what I like to do in these facilitated dialogues is encourage people to listen, to understand, not just listen to reply, not this competitive listening where we're seeking to defend our position and our point, but listen to understand and seek first to understand. And when you have someone facilitating that conversation and then you allow them to be in a position where they can hear, listen and learn and not feel attacked because it's not being directed towards them. All of the commentary comes towards me, comes towards me as the facilitator and the moderator. So you don't feel attacked. You may not agree but you don't feel attacked and you don't feel threatened and you don't feel the need to defend. But as I allow other people in the audience or other people that are part of the discussion, as I dig deeper and probe to understand why they feel the way they feel or why they think the way that they think, now you're able to develop some level of empathy. It's like, wow, maybe if I had gone through that, maybe if I had experienced that, I'm, although I don't agree, I might feel the same way. As they do. How do you bring out the honesty that is required to have meaningful conversations like this? Well, a part of it is I am vulnerable myself. I'm transparent and vulnerable myself, so I'm able to set the tone in that audience. I talk about some of the misperceptions that I had and how that led to me being misinformed and some of my assumptions and my preconceived notions and how once I took the time to truly hear someone out and listen to understand how I was able to be educated and then more informed. And I set the stage by getting buy-in from everyone that's participating in these facilitated conversations and dialogues is that it's important that we're all open. It's important that we're all honest. It's important that we're all transparent. And there will be no judgment because if we can't be comfortable enough to be open, honest, and transparent without fear of judgment, then we're not going to make any progress. So we set the stage and set the environment up front 
where I get everyone's buy-in. And I lead by example, and I share some of my own story about how some of my upbringing conditioned me to see members of law enforcement through a certain lens and how I had the revelation of, wow, based on some isolated incidents that really happened, some bad experiences, I projected that onto an entire profession. And I realized how misguided that was for me and how I was able to have a change of heart. And so now people aren't as embarrassed or uncomfortable about sharing their stories because I've already set the stage by sharing mine. It'd be hard to leave that without asking you to share that story quickly if you could. I grew up in Baltimore, and I'll share this pretty quickly, and I spent some time in L.A. I've lived in Baltimore, L.A., New York, D.C., um, Boston, so I lived in a number of places. But I grew up in Baltimore, and I was on the receiving end of some excessive force by members of Baltimore City Police in the neighborhood in which I grew up. So that conditioned me to view officers a certain way. When I lived in L.A., something similar happened, but in a much more egregious way than what happened to me in Baltimore, where I was thrown to the ground coming out of a convenience store. Uh, officer threw me to the ground, put his knee in my back, my face is on the, the black top of the parking lot, and he put his weapon to the side of my head. And his very first words to me were, give me a reason, I wish you would. I had no idea why that was even happening. That was Those were his first words. So most of my adult life, based on those experiences, I did not like, nor did I trust members of law enforcement, and per particularly white male police officers. And I, and I share that story, and I tell that story. And then I talk about an experience that I had with an officer at the Cary PD. Um, his name's Jeremy Bergen. Um, I, go, I, I call him JB. He goes by JB. And out of concern for my son's safety in 2014 on the hills of Ferguson, I wasn't sure how to protect my son based on what could potentially happen to him based on what I saw with Michael Brown, based on my own experiences and based on all the things that were going on across the country. I went to the Cary PD one day out of a, a desperate desire to figure out how can I keep my son protected from something like this happening to him. The officer that I happened to meet with was JB and JB sat down with me. He listened to me and John, his words to me, after he listened to me without interrupting or disrupting me, were, wow, I'm sorry that these things happened to you. I can understand why you feel that way. What can I do to change the way you feel about the Kerry PD and this profession overall? And then he challenged me and he said, what are some things you and I could do together to change the hearts and minds of other people that feel and think the way that you do? I was not ready for that. That's remarkable policing. Absolutely. That is what put me on the trajectory that my life is on right now. Well, thank you for sharing. Yep. Lived experience is a great segue into our interviews, and I, we do have a lot of these to get through, so I want to listen to the first one now. It's with Al McShirley. Uh, earlier, I described Al as a warrior in the civil rights movement. He is that through and through. He's 83 years old. He has been on the front lines of the struggle for civil rights since his earliest years. Al was among those most responsible for awakening an otherwise sleepy progressive base here in North Carolina after Republicans took over in 2010. It was the birth of the Moral Monday movement, and Al was at the center of that weekly protests against how the conservative majority was reshaping this state. But Al is white, and that matters. He is the white guy on stage standing next to Reverend William Barber. Uh, when he leaves that stage, and when he leaves that struggle, 
the struggle that he has been committed to all his life. He's still a white guy in the supermarket. And I wanted to see if we could glean anything from Al to help others who want to be committed advocates to causes but haven't lived the experience. Uh, so here's longtime civil rights advocate Al McShirley. We'll talk about it on the other side. I, I uh, was always white, proud to be white, proud to be Irish, Scotch-Irish, or whatever I, you know, my history is. My, most proud of being from a, my daddy was a newspaper man. That's how I was most proud of that. And I was proud of my mother uh, and her uh, radical Christianity, or that Jesus and justice meant exactly the same thing. So if you, if you start from that, I was never... I never felt uh, uh, guilty or whatever that I was white. I would like for white people to be happy with who they are and see just from common sense and logic, if not from their heart, uh, how important it is to dismantle racism. Because racism holds both both races down. And clearly, with Trump in there, uh, using uh, uh, black people as a... Uh, you know, like Jesse Helm used uh, gay people. You remember how he used the F word rather than N word? He started out with the N word on WRL every night, and then he changed it to the F word. Trump uses uh, immigrants or Mexicans or whatever or Latinos. Yeah, same dog as, whistles. As yeah. his uh, N word now. My prescription is fairly simple make friends with somebody who has uh, comes from one of these uh, categories that Trump hates and scapegoats, and so that you will feel it in your own bones just like they do. The closer friends you have that are black, when some creep comes, drives, you know, eight hours to El Paso and aims to kill people of color, uh, the more your empathy will be with those families. I mean, you will feel like he's killing your cousins. That's the way I felt every time I heard this asshole, you know, pull the trigger on them. Psychologists say the only difference between the human uh, species and, and say, a fairly well-developed orangutan <laughs> is uh, the ability to talk. You know, and they, and they say that... Uh, orangutans if you work on long enough you know they can even talk a little bit <laughs> and the ones that can talk with each other actually are have a more fun life you know in other words the talk is is what makes life fun that's what if you've ever been in love with anybody you know that talking hanging out with your love your lover or your wife or your mate or whoever is uh and talking with him is the, is the one of the best things in the whole world every drop of blood that man has has gone to the social justice movement what's your sense of what he said there well i, I love how he started it off he said I, i've always been white I, that's just my <laughs> one of my favorite lines from uh from that interview um but there are a couple of things that he said in there that I resonate with really strongly and the fact that he is white and being such an advocate and a champion for social justice I think is so important because racism is not just a problem for for black people it affects us all it, it, it affects us all and he clearly recognizes recognizes that and he knows he has the opportunity and the ability 
to contribute to the greater good of us all. And I know a lot of my white brothers and sisters are uncomfortable with the notion of, of white privilege. And when we talk about that, that is not an indictment on you for your whiteness. And he says, I've always been white. I'm proud of being white. And so I recognize that I'm not guilty about it. But I get the sense, although he didn't say this, he recognizes that that comes with privilege. And I remember watching a talk by Tim Wise, who led the talk by suggesting that everything that I'm going to tell Tim Wise is white. And he's talking about race. And he said, because the audience was predominantly white. And he said, everything that I'm going to share with you today, I learned from black people. But you're going to hear it from me differently because I'm white. And this, these are things that black people have been saying for generations, but they were falling on deaf ears because the credibility wasn't there. But because I'm white, you're going to hear it from me differently, and it's going to be more believable. I love what you said. You use the term brothers and sisters. I will say Al McShirley would love that because at the end of our interview, part of the interview I didn't play that people can see on the website, I go on to talk about allies and how important it is to be allies, and he kind of cut me off. He said, we're brothers and sisters. If you mm -hmm. want to talk about the human race, allies is this kind of kitschy term that people mm -hmm. use and this, that, and the other, and it is meaningful, but it still suggests two groups right. that are brought together as opposed to one group fighting for the same cause. No, absolutely. The way that I view this, and I hear people talk about sides, and I hear people talk about race, the, the, the black and the white, and I believe there's one race, the human race, right? And I believe there are only two sides, and those sides have nothing to do with the color of our skin. There's good and there's evil. And if you are on the side of good, I don't care what your age is, I don't care what your color is, I don't care what your ethnicity is, I don't care what your lifestyle is. If you're on the side of good, we are on the same team. I love it, man. Well, right now we're going to listen to uh, a lady here in Raleigh, a woman named Angela Frazier, who is on the side of good. She owns a company called Headspace, uh, makes custom wigs for women of color specifically. Before this, Angela spent 25 years as a power broker in consulting and banking. Uh, she left that to pursue her passion, which has always been hair. But beyond that, she holds community meetings and has for a while. She calls them head talks, obviously a play on TED Talks. And her world head stands for highlight, embrace, and advance diversity. So she's trying to help everyone understand a little bit about everyone else. Here's Angela Frazier from Headspace. Black women have a very um, special relationship with our hair. Our hair is political. However we decide to wear our hair, we're making a statement about who we are. I don't think that that is the same in other communities. A lot of our history is around how our hair represents our status. If you think about the Black Power Movement, when even in the Black community, wearing our hair natural was shunned, especially for older folks at the time, Wearing your hair natural, wearing your hair in an afro was a political act that your grandmother, your mother may have thought was the worst thing you could do because they're thinking about how are you going to get a job with your hair like that? How are you going to support your family with your hair like that? Imagine, imagine that. What I wanted to do is create a safe space for difficult conversations to happen because that's where the learning happens, right on that edge of discomfort is where a lot of learning takes place. If you choose to go there, you, you grow. The only objective that I have in my head talks 
is for people to leave with a little different thinking than they had and they take it back to their circles. I'm not trying to have any big changes in minds. If you had a perspective about, oh, black women are angry, or, you know, you know, our hair is this, or why is it a big deal? You come, we talk about it, and then you leave. And when you're having those conversations with other people, or you find yourself, you know, in situations where you'll have something to say that comes from a real knowing and not that single black friend that you, that you may have, you know, that has one, one, um, one opinion and you think that one opinion is, is the whole community. Think about it. The, the fact that we have linguistics, we have language, I mean, it is the way that change happens. And so it's where and with whom and how and all of that, those details. But communication is the core of any change that you want to see. And that's why she has these head talks and pulls people from her community in to try to broaden their minds. I, I love it. And we, we share in a similar vision in, in that regard and mission, I should say, because mission is what you do. And so we share in a similar mission. Uh, what's interesting is before I went down to the Cary PD to express my concerns and frustrations and angst, uh, the day before that, I was actually in the barbershop the barbershop that I go to in, in Cary, Black Barbershop. And you talk about anything and everything in the barbershop, man. Yeah. And we were talking about the Ferguson incident that day because that was a hot topic. And I was, I was, man, talking trash about the police. And that very barbershop in which I was talking trash about the police, once I befriended JB and then befriended the chief, Chief Godwin, who's one of my best friends on the planet today, uh, I invited them to come back to the barbershop so that we could start a series of courageous conversations that we call barbershop rap sessions. And that's one of those facilitated dialogues that I talked to you about. And we started that in August of 2014 and agreed to have those conversations on the first Saturday of every month. And we have not missed a first Saturday in five years. You're here. Yeah, yeah. And it's been the fruit that has been born out of that has been invaluable and, Im and immeasurable having those courageous conversations to help people get past their discomfort of talking about race but focus on how we can co-create solutions on how we can coexist and move forward together i absolutely love it yeah. the third conversation that i have was with one of our state senators a durham man named floyd mckissick jr I want to play a little bit of this interview. Floyd's dad was a civil rights leader who marched with Dr. Martin Luther King and was smack in the middle of the civil rights movement. And so Floyd grew up immersed in that. And now he is advocating very similar issues in North Carolina state governments. Here's Floyd McKissick talking about his experiences, and, uh, and we'll talk about it on the other side. All right. I've seen radical transformational change during my lifetime, having grown up in the segregated South and um, and seen what it was like to be in the forefront of uh, desegregating our, our, our schools, uh, desegregating uh, public accommodations and restaurants and the like. So I, I, I lived in a world when I was growing up where you saw that apartheid on a day-to-day -day basis and you felt that discrimination when you were in those classrooms, when people looked at you and thought of you as nothing more than a glorified monkey who didn't have the intelligence to uh, perform, to articulate your ideas, and you really didn't deserve to be there. But at the same time, I've lived through the radical transformational change that has occurred 
um, you know, during my lifetime, I'm 66 years old. So, I mean, through the Civil Rights Act, through the Voting Rights Act, through the fair housing laws and everything that came along with it, you know, I saw as a cow walking, you know, hundreds of Klansmen walk down through the streets of downtown Durham even after the passage of the Civil Rights Act because they feared change. And unfortunately, I think you see a resurgence of people who now feel that change is upon them. I think some of that occurred, uh, unfortunately, as a result of the election of President Obama. I think people felt that they were losing their country in some respects and and, uh, and, and somehow were losing power or influence, as the case may be, and it led to a resurgence and a backlash of uh, white nationalism. We have to begin to talk openly and substantively about our attitudes, our views, and perspective about race, and understand that it's it's okay if we have feelings that don't necessarily conform to what society says that they should be, in terms of us being completely and totally colorblind in our approach to issues, in our approach to people, uh, our approach to policies, because very few people have that degree of neutrality. Some do, but there are many of us who don't. No, I I love what he just talked about, particularly from a historical context. If we think about when Abraham Lincoln introduced the Emancipation Proclamation, that led to a civil war because the dominant white majority felt as though they were losing out on something. They were losing a, a power or this notion of superiority. And that led to some backlash. Uh, you fast forward to the the 60s when blacks in this country were fighting for equal rights is how it started and that it ended up being the civil rights movement which again resulted in or was a result of I believe at that time the dominant white majority feeling as though they were losing out on something if blacks in America were going to be put on equal footing and equal level and equal perceptions and equal uh, uh, viewed equally as them that there would be they will be losing something. So I love what he's saying um, if we look at it from a historical context. And then the fact that he included himself in that, uh, I applaud that because one of the things that I encourage all of us to do is take responsibility. And part of taking responsibility is not only looking at how can we contribute to the solution. Part of taking responsibility is taking a look in the mirror and truly assessing how are we contributing to the problem this is a great place to leave it good we're going to take a short break and when we come back we'll be joined by two more comms connoisseurs and get into the weeds of where some of the bigger communications breakdowns are happening when it comes to race and how we can all get past those uh, we're also going to play some games to get the heart of these things and then wrap up this communications breakdown as we do every week with anything else we'll be right back <music> Communications Breakdown is brought to you by Campsite Strategies. Campsite helps companies, nonprofits, and political types tap into their core strengths to pull out their very best stories with maximum impact. Campsite's Emmy-winning team of problem solvers and storytellers treats every client like it's their only client. Whether you want your story captured, told, and sold, or you're in the fight of your life feeling like David and need help figuring out which stones to throw, 
Campsite can help. Campsite will get the right information to the right people at the right time, and that can make all the difference in the world. If you've got a problem, odds are a good communication strategy will be key to solving it. Campsite will get you there. All right, we are back with Communications Breakdown. I'm John Camp, joined this week by our guest host, True Pettigrew, and now by a new set of panelists, Karel Sampson and Mitch Kokai. You both started out in TV news. Karel, you've had a storied career as a news producer in television news, and you're still in that business. Mitch, you've been in TV news and radio news. Now you head up the communications shop here at the John Locke Institute. We're taping this podcast at your shop. We appreciate it. Karel, Mitch, thanks for being here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thank you very much. Excited to be here. All right, well, let's start with a quick rundown of where everyone's coming from. It is a pod after all, so to paint the picture for our listeners, Carell, you're black. Correct. No, I'm just... I'm just <laughs> no, but but we, we should tell folks. <laughs> let's start there, though. Um, can I say that? Can we joke? Uh, where does the easiness end and the uneasiness begin? So let's start with labels and go around the table. Let's start with the white guy. I think, actually, that question, although we were laughing about it, some people would rather say, hey, don't call me black, call me African-American. I don't think folks who are white tend to get hung up on that, but we do tend to want to call people what they want to be called. I know there's a line kind of historically between black and African-American, um, either one is fine fine by me. I mean, the official answer, I'm American. Right? There you have it. Yeah, um, but, but black or African-American, yeah. both are neither offensive to you. Both no. describe you in, 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 a, in, a, in a neutral way. Yes. Okay, how about you, True? Well, I, I was at the All Black People Across America meeting last week, and we talked about this. <laughs> this, is, this came up. This was on the agenda. Is that right? <laughs> yes, yeah, sure. Is, uh, point 2A. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's on a case-by-case basis. I mean, this question comes up a lot in the work that I do. My wife is originally from Jamaica. She lives here. She says, well, I'm not African-American, right? I'm black. My youngest son is biracial. He identifies, for now anyway, as brown. Uh, but in many communities, that means Hispanic. Right. And so it gets complicated. I guess there's no way to simplify it unless you ask and have the conversation. Correct. Have the conversation. Well, let's turn to the mainstream news for a minute. Uh, let, what's your sense for how either TV stations, newspapers, mainstream outlets cover issues surrounding race. And I'll start this off. I always find it striking how a lot of news outlets, specifically TV stations, use black reporters to cover issues that have to do with black people. Barack Obama's election is probably the best example of this. Often it was not the political reporters that would get sent to cover his stuff. It was a black reporter. Uh, and I get the idea of lived experience, it's important for insightful coverage. It's hard for a reporter without kids to fully grasp the importance of back-to-school stories. So as a white reporter, the question I wrestle with is, is it possible for me to cover an event accurately and completely if it's tied to an historical prejudice that I've never lived or I've never experienced? It is true that lived experience helps you cover stories. Is it important to be black to cover black things? Let me start with you, True. Uh, that's a great question, and I think that there is some relevance and connectivity that comes if you have someone that is black that is covering what is perceived or positioned to be something that is part of a black experience. And to me, it all gets down to purpose. 
what is the purpose of the coverage? What are you trying to cover? How are you trying to serve your viewers or your listeners? And if you are seeking and asking questions of genuine curiosity and not basing it on any assumptions or biases, then I think absolutely it's it's doable. Sports analogy, uh, I never played professional football, but, you know, I could cover football, sure. uh, college collegiate football. Um, it's you know, just reporting. You're reporting the news. and I will say, though, younger reporters generally don't get stories that are important to parents. And that's that's where I come down, kind of on the other side of the it is possible coin, because relevant experience with subject matter is critical to insightful, balanced, and thoughtful coverage. Oh, definitely. But I think, you know, I'm not a financial analyst, but I know when the stock market's tanking, and I know what my 401k looks like. So, but I yeah. don't know that I'd want to take my financial news from you. <laughs> right? yeah. But I can understand. I ask the right questions. As a reporter, that's your duty to ask the right questions right. and to report what you're seeing. I don't think there's a hard line as yes and no. You yeah. have to be black to cover a black experience. It's, it's just reporting. It's how you report. Uh, you reference specifically political stories, and to me, it would it would probably be fairly easy for a white reporter to cover a black candidate on a political story. Where I think this comes uh, out more often is if you're covering something that's a really important community issue. Sure, I think it'd be easier for a black reporter to cover something like what to do about crime in a black neighborhood. It might be easier if they look at you and think, at least they might have an idea where I'm coming from. Whereas white guy coming in here, I have to start from ground zero because he has no idea where I'm coming from. Well, let me start the next question with you as the white guy at the table and as the conservative white guy at the table, because conservatives, it seems to me anyway, and I know I'm not alone in thinking this, are are often perceived to be and are often tugging at the other end of the rope when it comes to policies that impact communities of color. Whether it's a racial issue or social justice issue, voting rights redistricting, the policies advanced by conservatives and Republicans in North Carolina have largely been seen as negative for and by people of color. And so the question to you is, should I see this differently? Am I seeing this the right way? And if so, is there some kind of communication breakdown going on where conservative policies aren't negative for people of color and they're seeing it the wrong way? The big challenge for this is, and there are different types of policies, but one of the big challenges is that the right of center policy tends to be something where you say, okay, we would like to have the same ground rules apply to everyone that you're going to cut tax rates for everyone. You're going to reduce regulatory burden on everyone. And what you end up seeing as a result sometimes is that there is, and the official terminology is disparate impact. You'll see different impacts for different communities. And if it turns out that a policy ends up having a larger negative impact on blacks or on Hispanics or other minorities, then folks in those communities say, wait a minute, you know, you're talking about making the policies the same for everyone. Why is it that we're the ones getting hit the hardest? But when their policies are oftentimes corrosive for one or two demographics, how do you communicate that if you're talking about voting rights and you're taking away the kind of souls to the polls Sunday, for instance, how are you supposed to tell black folks that that's not aimed at them? How, how do you communicate that? 
if you're going to make that kind of policy, and it's not a great political decision to make, but if you're going to do it, you have to have a good justification. And I don't think the General Assembly, when they made that particular change, had a great justification. From any conversation I've ever had with a Republican legislator who's worked on this, their idea is let's make it as easy as possible for Republicans to win and for Democrats to lose. I'm challenged with people aligning themselves with a specific party or a, a specific mindset. I'm, I'm, I'm truly challenged with that as I listen to Mitch talk about the why. He said, well, why they do this is that's at the heart of the matter to me, is operating with a sense of purpose. If you're driven by supporting the party, regardless of what's best for the greater good of the people that you've been placed in a position to have stewardship over, that is problematic. I'm not looking to the right. I'm not looking to the left. I'm looking at what's best for the greater good. And I'm challenged with our leaders that do not lead with purpose. All right, that's a good place to leave that. If you've ever listened to the podcast, you know that we like to play games to get to the heart of what is working, what's not, how people are effectively communicating in today's increasingly noisy environment. We're going to play some different games today. One is called Honest Reporting. We're going to see if we can't come up with some tips for journalists working on stories that have to do with race. I'll tee up the topic. Y'all can offer the tip to our fellow journalists. So let's start with something real the Confederate protest in Hillsborough a few days ago. My question is, how much coverage should these idiots get? If you're a reporter, if you're a news department, how much airtime do you give these yahoos? Well, to me, you got to start that process by deciding, okay, where is this happening? How much of an impact does it have? How many people are really involved? I think if this is something in, in this market, if this is something that's happening in Raleigh, Durham, Fayetteville, you got to cover it because those are your big places. If it's Hillsboro, you decide, okay, well, you know, how, how big is it in Hillsboro? Is it three jokers carrying a sign, standing in front of a building, and no one's paying attention to them? If so, do you give them coverage? Eh, maybe not. If it, if it does spark a big protest uh, back and forth, the, the, the local government gets involved. You probably do have to cover it to some extent. For historical purposes, got to cover it. They're out there. They're making, they're protesting. Uh, they're armed. We later found out they were armed. We definitely uh, wanted to cover that perspective. I mean, covering the KKK is easy, easy, uh, low-hanging fruit um, of racism. Um, but, yeah, they, if they're going to do so and they, you know, if there's a potential for counter-protests as what happened did, we want to make sure we have cameras there to document it, not only show what's going on in our community now, but for historical purposes, um, and to have on record that, hey, in 2019, this stuff is still going on, it's still out there, it's still prevalent, it's right there in your face, and it's not something from 50 years ago, it's something from right now. Yeah, it's really important, it's an important aspect of this, true? Yeah, I, I agree. I think you cover it, based on what the expected outcome is going to be. Is it posing a threat and danger to the members of that community? You don't want to give something like that um, any power. But if it's going to pose a threat to the members of the community, then I think you, you cover it for the benefit of the members of that community. All right, how about this next one? Reporting around the criminal justice system. We all know it's wildly biased in both prosecution and sentencing of crimes. The data is crystal. So when news stations have to cover 
crime stories. How do they do this without reinforcing stereotypes? And then how do they account for the inequity of that system in their reporting? Or should they? If you look at the the data point of young black males are being suspended and expelled from school at a rate four times greater than their counterparts. So the question, the real question should be, are young black males that much more disruptive and unruly? Right. So that's the question we should be asking. Okay, why is this happening at such a higher rate compared to the the rest of the population? Grill. As you know, we relied on stringers in Durham, right? And the easy surface level top layer um, coverage is to just take that shooting and cover it and show flashing lights on the news and call it a day. To put the mugshot on of a young black male on TV and call it a day and say, hey, this just this just happened. It's a responsibility for us to pursue why is it happening and not just show the effects of what's going on. Yeah, I think the there's the need for the awareness of providing some context. You're not going to be able to provide the context in the 20-second story of who got shot today or who uh, was involved in some sort of bank robbery, but there ought to be an awareness within the, the decision-making authorities at various news organizations that Yes, we're going to cover those things, but we also need to, on a regular basis, talk about these broader issues. Right. All right. This next this next game is called Huge Topic, Short Answer. Uh, in this game, you each get 30 to 45 seconds, and I will cut you at 45 to give you your best thumbnail on issues of enormous consequence. The first one is institutional racism. How do we push back against it? True. Take it where you will. I think we push back against it by educating Right. And really helping others understand those that are in power, understand the implications of the choices and decisions that they make. And again, peeling back the layers of do you really want to maintain institutional racism because it benefits you? Done. Carell. Empathy. We're all the same human race. Empathy is uh, what we all need. My experience, my life experience may be different from everyone else, but we're all the same. And just understanding where I'm coming from, understanding where you're coming from, we're all the same. It's all about being empathetic to everybody. I think having the facts helps. I mean, rather than just saying something is racism, uh, it's good to have the facts, not just anecdotes or not just accusations. Next up, Obama's presidency. Did it move us into a post-racial America? Take it, Mitch. That, I think, was the hope of a lot of people. I think even people who might not have agreed necessarily with Barack Obama on a lot of policies, but they said, look, this is the first chance that that people have to vote for an African-American president, and truly African-American since his dad was African. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I think think that was the hope. I don't think it's turned out that way. And I think the blame for why it hasn't uh, turned out that way can be put in a lot of places. It showed where we could be um, potentially, but it, it, we're still um, we still have a long way to go. True, we are not post-racial, and we we see signs of that every day with the racism racism that rears its ugly head in, in our society. I think it agitated those that are on the spectrum of sentiment as it relates to relates to race that are on the far end of that in the category of racist, it's agitated them even more. It's a great place to start wrapping this up. We're going to end this communications breakdown as we do every week by asking a question I ask at the end of every single interview I ever conducted for 20 years. 
anything else and so we ask you anything else what did we miss in this show uh, it's an opportunity for all of you to let us know what we forgot something comms oriented hopefully maybe under the umbrella of race that's got you itching and wanting to give it a good rhetorical scratch who wants to go first diversity of thought is uh, necessary in newsrooms um just uh having perspective from all sorts i shouldn't be i shouldn't represent the entire black race in a meeting um you know just having diversity of thought one of the interesting things that uh, we learned just this week that w- that uh, is probably worth sharing on this topic is that there's a lot of research that shows that young African-American students benefit greatly throughout their lives if they come into contact with at least one African-American teacher. Mm-hmm. And the, the effect actually goes down if there are multiple teachers media you still have a positive effect but it's not as much beyond the first teacher they have to see at least one and so there has to be more done to expose uh, students of color black students african-american students to at least someone within their educational career who who looks like them right on here here true now i'll I'll close with this. In all of my trainings, particularly my diversity and race relations trainings, I encourage the participants to think about this. We should not allow our primary or only source of information about people that don't look like us to only come from people that look like us. Slam that mic down, buddy. (laughs) <laughs> I mean it That does it for this edition Of Communications Breakdown Huge thanks to all of you guys For joining True Pettigrew Many thanks Karel Sampson Thank Mitch you. Kokai uh, Also want to Lend a huge thanks To my good friend Marcus Urani And his band Rising Tide For producing today's music You can find full interviews With Al McShirley Angela Frazier As well as Senator Floyd McKissick Jr. On our website CampsiteStrategies.com You can get there By finding Communications Breakdown On Apple Podcasts Don't forget to subscribe If you like us Rate the show It helps others Who might be interested In sharpening their own Communication skills Find the show Tell your friends Add us on social At CampsiteSC Is our handle on different social media sites at Campsite SC. You can also use hashtag communications breakdown. We'll be back in your feed next week. Till then, remember, words matter, so take them seriously. Campsite. <laughs>